Welcome to the Transforming Society podcast. As children across the UK are returning back to school, I'm speaking to Pat Thompson, Professor of Education at the University of Nottingham and author of School Scandals, Blowing the Whistle on the Corruption of Our Education System. In the book, Pat takes on England's muddled education system, highlighting failings caused by the actions of ministers in successive governments, and she looks at what can be done to improve educational outcomes for everyone. Hi, Pat. Thank you for speaking to me today. Hi. As the subtitle of the book says, your book is about corruption and bad behaviour in the school system in England. What do you mean when you talk about corruption in the context of education? Well, I guess corruption is um, is a term which has actually got two meanings, really. Um, so there's a very old meaning which goes all the way back to the Greeks um, and comes up through people like Machiavelli and Christianity and Marxism. And sort of a bunch of people have talked about the state as being corrupt. And what they mean by that is a kind of a state which is not functioning in the best interests of the people that it's meant to serve or the people that actually constitute the state or a nation state in, in our cases, we understand it. So there's that kind of understanding of corruption, which is, which is a state which is not doing very well and okay. is sick in some way. And then there's the more contemporary understanding of corruption, which is a, a kind of a legal definition, which refers to practices like um, uh, fraud, um, you know, cronyism, um, um, you know, political uh, bribery, you know, those kinds of activities um, we would understand as being corruption um, in, in a kind of technical and contemporary sense. And so in the book I actually talk about um, corrupt corruption as it actually is generally understood today with things like fraud and bribery and, and naughty, naughty sort of doings. Yeah. So talk about, I also, rather than talk about, you know, one point I did consider to, talking about um, big corruption and big C corruption and little c corruption, you know, with mm. big C corruption being the legal definition and little c corruption being the kind of sick state. And then I decided not to do that. I thought that would be a bit twee and a bit confusing. And so I decided to talk about corrupted practices. So in yes. other words, they're practices that go on in the state, which actually have really perverse kind of outcomes that don't work in people's best interests. And so, you know, the A-level fiasco is a, is a really good example of certainly in the first instance of a corrupted practice. Um, you know, because something that was intended to, um, you know, fairly represent um, students' achievements during a very kind of difficult time and give their attainment, their academic attainment, a score, um, actually ended up um, producing some very bizarre results and a whole lot now there's been a lot of social costs attached to that. So even there's been some, though there's been some redress, there's still, and the, that decision's been reversed, there's still a lot of problems going on as a result of it in universities and places where students had a place, didn't have a place, now have yeah. it back but till next year that's what I'd call a kind of it's a version of a corrupted practice that just produces something 
um, that doesn't work in everybody's best interest. But I initially got interested, actually, in the topic um, because I kept seeing stories in the media um, and particularly in the educational media. So I'm talking about journalism that specialises in reporting on schools. Um, I just saw lots and lots of stories about um, schools where th there were kind of really problematic legal kind of issues, you know, and it was to do with um, money being misused, uh, money disappearing, money being um, spent on things that it shouldn't, um, and also some other kind of associated events like um, miscounting of students, which is to do with getting in more money. And, and so I started to collect, though, I literally collect media clips about those. Um, and then, of course, as I started to read around corruption, I found out really about this kind of wider understanding of corruption. And as I started to look at, well, why is this happening? Um, it seemed to me that the answer is really that both things, both actual, you know, Ill illegal behaviour and what I've called corrupted practices or I initially called bad behaviour, I think, schools behaving badly. Yeah. You know that they both actually had come from the same kind of place, and there was this sort of systemic problem um, that that was actually producing these these kind of perverse um, effects. Um, despite the fact, actually, that you know most of the people in the system are you know working their socks off. And I think we can see, you know, during the whole um, lockdown period, you know, since March, um, it's really been due to the, you know, frontline people in, in health and education and other kind of services that have actually made the whole system work. So in a sense, the kind of um, pandemic has exposed, I think, what ordinarily actually goes on. It is actually people in schools that kind of keep things, keep things going. And a lot of the practices that sit around schools have perhaps unintended kind of consequences that in some ways are um, really wasteful of people's um, time, <clears throat> but also of public money. Could you give some more examples of what these kind of corrupted practices are within education? Well, I think one of them is to do with the impact of a narrow testing kind of agenda. Um, so what happens at the moment is that we've combined into one set of tests and exams um, a, a two kinds of functions really so there's the kind of function which says well how well is the school doing um and they and how well is the system doing given that the system is all the schools um you know and there's another function which says how well is the student doing and it what happens if you you know obviously if you want to measure um, what a system is doing, you choose um, a few kind of key things to look at. And actually, you can only afford to look at a few things because it's incredibly expensive to do the kind of testing that is done here, which is a sort of census test. Um, everybody is tested because you have to do that if you're going to 
assess student progress. And that, that's what we use to measure the effectiveness of schools, isn't it? And, yes, at the yeah. same time. So you, 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 you bring together assessment of student learning with judgments about the effectiveness of schools. Yeah. And you would, of course, do these things differently. It would be possible to measure the effectiveness of schools using a representative sample or it would be possible to have a rolling set of measures so that, for example, you looked at literacy one year, numeracy the next, um, social learning, science, you know, you might have a rolling agenda. But because we're doing the same thing every year, mm -hmm. um, mainly focused around literacy and numeracy, um, then that those and then we attach a kind of punitive regime around effectiveness which which impacts really heavily on on the viability of schools. In other words, if you don't get you know the kind of t results that have been set for you as a target, then you know you can be closed down as a school um, and reborn perhaps as something else or not reborn at all. Um, and so there are lots of there are lots of incentives in that kind of system for schools to play a bit loose with testing agendas. And I right. think that can that can you know <laughs> that can vary a lot. But you know it it does I think. I think there's sufficient evidence to suggest that, you know, some schools are off-rolling students, some schools exclude students. There are some documented cases of schools enrolling students in particular kinds of subjects in order to bump up their results. Um, you know, on top of the tests, the Conservative government laid over another sort of set of school measures as well, which was which was an incentive to teach to a particular kind of curriculum and that reduced some of the curriculum options in schools. So it's the, the sort of quest for accountability um, combined with student assessment actually produces these some in some schools um, an incentive for them to to gain the system. I think so that's and of course not all schools do that by any means and there are lots of schools that mop up um, the gaming of other schools so yeah. that they you know they are the, they're the ones that, that will take all the students from other schools regardless of um, the kinds of um, issues that they bring with them and the demands for special education support and whatever else so it, it, that's an, an example I think of what I mean by a kind of corrupted practice. So it, this leads on to my next question, um, which you answered in part there, um, but what effect has this corruption had on our school system? Well, I think, I think one of the things, and I'm going to go to another kind of example, one of the things that has happened um, has been a in the shift particularly, the, the, the system has shifted from being largely, well, all provided by through local authorities. And we now have a school system where, you know, two-thirds of secondary school students are educated um, outside of the local authority system. So they're educated through generally multi-academy trusts. Um, and about a third of primary school children are now educated through multi-academy Trust. Those numbers, was I had no idea how little involvement local authorities have in lots of schools now. 
Well, yeah, they, and they don't have the kind of capacity to do the kinds of things, even some of the statutory things that they're obliged to do. They no longer have the income, really, because, you know, in some local authorities, you know, nearly nearly all but one or all of the schools have gone have gone into multi-academy trusts. So they, they, ha they don't really um, have the same capacity that they used to have. But I think one of the, to go back to the kind of corrupted, I mean, that in itself is a kind of corruption as well, when you're asking local authorities to do something like be responsible for all the children that are permanently excluded and they actually don't have all the money to do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's happened has been it's much more difficult now and it's very dependent on the... Um, the trust itself, a multi-academy trust itself, it's quite difficult in some trusts for not only parents but also teachers to have some um, involvement in making decisions and making policy. And because multi-academy trusts don't have a kind of place for parents, for example, parents have sort of lost their voice. Okay. And multi-academy trusts don't necessarily have to make their minutes completely um, uh, transparent and available to people. So, you know, they vary and there is, there is research on this. So, you know, most people feel, most schools actually feel they have somewhat less say over what they're doing than they did when they were a local authority school. And in some trusts, they feel like they have a lot less say. And certainly there are cases of, of parents who feel they, have, they don't have much say anymore. Now, in the literature, this is generally talked about as, you know, and this is one of these kind of academic words, as de-politicisation or what I would call it probably de-democratisation. So yeah. you get... A of erosion of the number of people who actually know about what's going on in school um, and it gets hard and, and actually can influence that and it's harder to get information um, and so you know it, it and it's not that local authorities were perfect and schools were perfect about this before um, so we weren't starting necessarily from a, a you know, 100% fantastic base, and it's always this kind of area has always been patchy. But there's no doubt that the kind of Academy Trust legislation um, actually it does, it does mean that there's no need for a trust to make certain kinds of information available um, and to involve parents or indeed teachers um, in decisions that, that go on. And I guess some people wouldn't see that as a problem. I mean, you wouldn't expect to have a say in the way your local supermarket operates, for example. No. But, you know, the difference, obviously, I think in, it is that this is actually a public provision. It's paid, you know, the supermarket is not a public provision. It's a, it's a private enterprise. And regardless of whether we're talking about a multi-academy trust or um, a school run through the local authority, we are talking about um, the distribution of our taxes, basically. Yeah. We're talking about a public um, service and we're talking about a public service which is intended to be for the benefit not simply of the children and the and the families who go to that school but actually is intended to make a kind of contribution to the way that society functions more generally.
So what do you think the social impact is of that loss of democracy in the system? Well, I think it's it's not the only place where it's happened, of course, you know, because yeah. this, this shift is part of a kind of general philosophy of governing, you know, which... Um, I, I think, you know, some um, American kind of enthusiasts, um, Osborne and Gablet, called steering at a distance, you know, that govern, governments didn't actually have to muddy their hands with, with service delivery. They could make policy and they could fund and they could regulate and they could monitor and they could, you know, intervene. Um, but they didn't actually have to bother themselves with what was what was actually the way that things happened on the ground as long as the outcomes were actually happening. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's happened in, in health, for example. You can see it in other kinds of, um, in different ways, in other sorts of public services as well, um, where it mainly manifests as kind of, um, increased uh, increased costs, say in transport, for example. But I think health and education are probably the two main areas where people might um, expect particular kinds of things from at the local level. Um, and I think what that means, you can actually see what that means. I think really clearly during the pandemic. I mean, you know, it, in the book, in the preface, I had to write a preface um, yeah. during the pandemic, you know, just to kind of bring it a bit up to date. Things are moving so fast at the moment, um, but in a patterned kind of way, and it's the pattern, I think, that I, I really tried to talk about in the book. But, you know, during the pandemic, almost in the first few days of lockdown, um, local schools, particularly those that served um, communities where families were doing it pretty tough already, yeah. um, knew that they had to keep free school meals going. And so, like, within a 24 hours, you know, they've turned around the whole school dinner process, they're sending out packed lunches, um, you know, they've invented a kind of voucher system where... Um, you know, they've made a deal with the kind of little corner shops and the little local supermarket, um, you know, that families who are registered for school meals can go in and get the equivalent of, of, of a day's um, dinner yeah. uh, for the students. And, and that gets set up really quickly. Um, and then, you know, not so long afterwards, the government initiates its kind of school, national school voucher system. And they did it without really understanding, I think, because, you know, Westminster's, you can't see a child from Westminster. No. <laughs> so you, you, um, even on a clear day. Um, <laughs> they didn't really make much um, attempt, it seems, to actually talk to head teachers or Māori Academy Trust CEOs, you know, on the ground. Right. Um, and so, you know, they rolled out its national national scheme. Um, it didn't work properly. And the first version of it was for meal deals at two or three um, of the upper, more upper market supermarkets. Oh, I didn't um, realise that. Yeah, yeah. That was the, that was the first go. Okay. Initially, they said they were going to do, you know, anyway. That that was how it how it happened. And of course, you know, there's not, there's, those supermarkets don't exist in a lot of 
places. You know, they're, they, you know, I mean, even in Nottingham, we don't have a Waitrose. That um, shows how disconnected like, the government is, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like, so that is one of the kind of, and, and of course, then schools had to make a decision. Were they going to keep going with their local voucher scheme or were they going to switch over to the government scheme? And they didn't know if they were going to get the money back from the department if they kept on with their own scheme. And so they switched over to the, you know, the national scheme. And of course, it worked. You know, it had a lot of teething problems, mm. um, uh, vouchers that were being printed out, a lot of them didn't work, you know, local families were going to eventually the wider group of supermarkets that were included. Right. Uh, and, you know, the vouchers wouldn't work at the till. And so you can Yeah, you, you talk get, about that in the book. You say yeah, that in the exactly, book, just yeah. horrific kind of... And then it's the local school that has to mop that up because where is the family going to go when they haven't got their voucher money yeah. um, and they haven't been able... They've been shamed and humiliated, you know, at supermarket till. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what... So the school's mopping that up. You know, the website for the food vouchers broke down and there are staff, you know, up half the night trying to input the people who are eligible for vouchers so that these can actually be um, sent to the school and then distributed to the family. So this is a terribly um, inefficient system and it's one which, and I mean, it is working sort of much better now, but it took a hell of a lot to actually get it going. It took, and it, um, was, it took Marcus Rushford as well, didn't it, to get them to extend it into uh, the summer holidays? Well, if there were actually, a, he was the kind of figurehead, I think, that probably tipped the the balance. But there had been a lot of people arguing, and a lot of the big kind of poverty action groups, and had, had been in a number of backbenchers, you know, had been arguing that this actually had to happen. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is this is a big step for the government because they've never actually provided food for children during the holidays before. This is a and this is a precedent which presumably they were really worried about and didn't want to see it. Yeah. But you know, I and and there and what's being revealed, of course, through this, is the degree of poverty in England. You know, the just unacceptable levels of um, financial difference that exists in our community. I mean, the children who are going to hospital because of malnutrition, you know, families that are entirely dependent on food banks. I mean, this, I mean, in my book, this is, there. it is a kind of corrupted society, actually, which yeah. creates this level of um, imbalance, I think, in, in people's welfare and well-being, I mean, given the amount of wealth that there actually is in this country, and the fact it's so badly distributed. Um, just became, I think, glaringly obvious to people. And, uh, you know, and so the schools, it's clearly seen once again, I think, you know, I mean, for years we've been having this this kind of, you know, is it bad for working-class mothers to give their children chips kind of debate? Yeah. Do children what a zucchini is? Which actually has obscured the fact, I'm not saying they're not important questions, but actually the real purpose of school dinners is or has always been um, as part of a kind of welfare system. And it actually recognises that families can't afford to feed their children um, and the state has to do it. 
Um, and I think that's just become glaringly obvious to people um, at present. And the, the sheer incapacity of the the government to kind of initially organise the, boo- the proverbial booze up in the brewery um, has just been obvious. You know, wherever you look, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about PPE, whether you're talking about, um, you know, um, adequate kind of protection in aged care facilities, whether you're talking about the kind of contracts that you let, that are let, provision of laptops to schools, um, exam results, you know, I mean, this is, an, this is a government which has got a serious organisational problem, you know, the, the system that's been set up consists of lots of wonky kind of supply chains with very loose linkages, um, which in a crisis actually aren't what you need. I mean, they, they are ineffective and when you're not in a crisis, but in a crisis, they fall apart. And then there's a lot of time and effort um, that has to be put into actually making making them work and also dealing with the damage that they're not working actually creates. So given the fact that we get this corruption and broken systems across so many different areas, it must be to do with the system and culture of government that allow this to happen. So what do you think are the key characteristics of government that, and the civil service that contribute to this? Well, I think I think I'd want to separate out the um, the kind of civil service and the government, although you know they they are kind of joined at the top. Although given the recent events, you know, clearly even people at the top can be sacrificed um, if yeah. necessary. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, um, but, you know, it is the case that a lot of people at the top of the civil service went to the same schools and the same universities as, um, you know, people in government. Um, so there is a kind of you know, sort of some common culture amongst them, although some of them clearly, you know, obviously don't have the same kind of beliefs um, at all. But one of the things that's that's happened, I think, has been, you know, what I call, I talk about in the book has been this kind of, fun, there's, a, there's both a cultural and structural question. So the structural change that's happened has been to institute this kind of funder purchaser provider model where the civil service function is is to commission and contract and purchase um, public services from a range of providers um, in the old traditional public providers but a range of other new private providers, charities, whatever. Um, and the funder, which is the government, I mean, clearly just gets to make decisions. And the purchase is also supposed to provide feedback and help the um, funder develop new policy. So okay. it's got those two functions to kind of, you know, downwards to the um, to the providers to make sure they're doing what they're meant to do, but upwards to government to make sure that the policies are working properly. Now, you know, it, it, that's that's their job in doing that is meant to be looking after the public interest. And I think the civil service is now in a very conflicted kind of position because on the 
one hand, they're, they're meant to, and they should obviously provide a service to the government of the day, but at the same time, they also have to look after the longer term interest of the public. And I mean, they, there's clearly t at least tension um, at times around those two kind of functions. And I, I think that can kind of inhibit um, the kind of public service, um, the civil service capacity to provide frank and fearless advice, particularly if it's not in line with, you know, current government thinking. Okay. Um, so, you know, I think uh, the, the culture, you know, it, it, it's, it, people suggest, I think, that the civil service in England, you know, has always had um, a concern with due process, with fairness, with equity. Um, and I think that's that's certainly true for a, a lot of people, but there's also a bit of myth about that as well. And, of course, the concern with due process did often end up in really time-consuming, you know, bureaucratic processes which frustrated everybody um, and it took a long time and actually didn't serve the public that well either. So, again, it's kind of one of these cases, I think, where we don't want to be looking backwards and saying, oh, it was so wonderful before. Yeah. <laughs> because that's absolutely not the case. Um, you know, but I, I think it's certainly the case now that um, it's much harder for um, the civil service to retain a kind of focus on the longer term interest of the of the public, and I'm I'm sure a lot of individual public servants, civil servants, and um, sections of departments do their damnedest to try and make sure that's hap that happens. But a lot of their jobs are, are, have actually changed, you know, so that they. You know, they spend a lot of time monitoring and counting and dealing with data and what. And it's much harder when you're doing that kind of work to actually see how and where, you know, the public interest actually lies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what role do values, morals, and ethics play? Do they play a role? Yes, they clearly do. And I, and I think in talking about the public good, I mean, we're clearly talking about something which has a, a values base and which demands um, ethical behaviour, um, not only on the part of um, service people who are actually in the front line and people in the civil service, but it also um, do, is demanded of, of government. And I think one of the things I kind of say in the book is that, you know, the, the tone, the culture is set from the top. And, you know, I think when we have a kind of political regime now, which is, you know, highly populist, which is highly dependent on spin, where there have been demonstrable cases of it attempting to um, manipulate numbers or to spin things in a particular way or just kind of flat out deny um, what's been happening, you know, that doesn't promote a, a kind of culture of, openness and um, uh, honesty, I think, with, within the rest of the organisation. So I, I think I say in the book quite clearly, you know, this is this has got to be about leadership from the top. And, and I think, you know, what we what we need is is not simply schools and the civil service, but actually the whole system, which includes um, obviously government as well, to have a much um, um, 
more moral kind of commitment to to the good of the public. And I think that means having, for example, different ways of thinking about what's effective and different ways of thinking about what's efficient. And I argue in the book, you know, that efficiency has come to mean um, doing something on the cheap, yeah. um, where, where in fact efficiency might be not simply doing is not necessarily about doing something on the cheap it might be about doing something with the least amount of waste um and you know certainly i think when we're talking um about um public money then doing things without waste is actually pretty important so that you're not kind of mismanaging and uh, i mean in the book i argue that the the current school system um, has got some inbuilt um, now, some inbuilt kind of waste-producing um, practices within it. So you know we're we're committed to the public finance initiative, private finance, public-private finance kind of initiatives for a very long period of time, which have just cost vast amounts of public money. Yeah. But also the academy system itself, for example, depends, I mean, has got built into it the capacity for schools to be rebrokered, the capacity for schools to um, be closed down, you know, if they don't prove to, to get the numbers, for example. Yeah. And I think we've just got ongoing documentation of those two things alone, rebrokerage and school closures, um, actually, you know, costing a fair bit of money. And it's actually money which isn't, is we don't actually know the full extent of it because it, it's never kind of added up, you know, in a, in a way that is transparent, you know, it is kind of fudged and it does rely on on journalists and um, uh, uh, organisations, professional organisations and interest organisations to actually submit freedom of information requests to actually find out how much money has been wasted. Yeah. So, of course, what, what I argue is if you've got the kind of a, a value which is, a, which is related to an understanding of efficiency, which is about conserving, and I'd have to say, I think these days that using um, resources wisely also obviously takes on an environmental um, kind of aspect as well. Yeah. And it also, I mean, to go back to the school dinner voucher example, um, it might actually be better in the long run, um, although it might cost slightly more, it might actually be better for schools to run their own local voucher systems where they can, using local shops and local supermarkets, because that's creating local jobs, which yeah. is actually keeping localities, um, you know, healthier, really, um, in both economically but also in terms of their kind of well-being as well. And they'll, they'll cost the state um, less in other areas, you know, if, um, if the local economies are, are, are actually vibrant. So there's different ways, I think, of thinking about um, the the public resources that we have and how they might be used to best benefit 
And I think schools, I mean, are obviously part of that process. And when decisions are taken away from them in the way that they have been um, now, kind of, you know, perversely, then you lose an opportunity, um, which you then have to actually make up in furlough payments, in, you know, all kinds of other things. And it might have just been better for everybody to actually let the schools do what they what they knew um, with the communities that they actually serve. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there lessons that we can learn from other countries? Um, well, I think different different um, school systems operate differently. I mean, if we we took you know um, inspection as a regulator, which is what you know regulatory process. Um, all um, school systems have to be regulated. I mean, there's not a school system that you wouldn't want to be regulated precisely because you are. it is a substantial public investment. So you do want to make sure that they're doing um, a good job. But, but different countries have different ways of doing this, and even inspection services are different um, and operate differently. So we, we could look, for example, at... Um, you know, a kind of a, a, a system I know well, obviously, as you can hear, I'm Australian. If we looked at the Australian system, I mean, the Australian system has a kind of a superintendent system, which is a hybrid between the America and the UK and probably looks a little bit more like the old HMI um, in uh, in England and the way that that used to work. But the, the schools are nevertheless, you know, quite closely monitored but it's done in a different kind of way um but even if we retained Ofsted exactly as it is yeah we wouldn't necessarily have to attach the same level of punitive measures to or the same kind of gradings you know it's the kind of grading system you're either outstanding good or you're you know in deep trouble yeah um, you know and then the actions that follow that you know, this could be an improvement-driven strategy, for example, rather than um, a kind of punishment-driven strategy, which is, I think, arguably what it leans towards at the moment. And that's not Ofsted's fault. It's the way that Ofsted um, is actually used by government. So it's as part of the governing process. So, But, you know, it's, it's interesting to look, I think, at the different ways that different systems use to regulate themselves and um, some of and I think it's on a balance between the balance between punitive and in, in you know improvement yeah. um, different systems are in different places and there are also different costs attached to them and I think that's the other thing about the current inspection system is that it is actually pretty expensive. Um, and, and, you know, and certainly the reason, I'm sure the reason that, you know, visits were cut down from, you know, four or five days to two or three and the frequency of visits changed for schools that was seen as outstanding is, is was in part a way to reduce the cost of the process. Um, I'm, but, always, I'm always quite shocked to realise that the outstanding schools don't actually get inspected all that often, do they? Well, I think that's changed, and I think oh, 
Yeah, I think that they're certainly going to be revisited again because I think that policy, while it might have saved some money, I think also created some problems. And, you know, the problem is that um, nobody was looking at what they at what they did. And um, so, you know, in a sense, they got no regulation. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is uh, quite and, corrupt as well, isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think there's a big there's a big discussion to be had, I think, about, um, you know, regulation, about assessment, about how it is you actually decide how well the system is doing and what measures you might use to actually use to, to do that. Um, you know, because what's here is 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 distinctive. But and quite and quite different from what happens in a lot of other places, and I think it would be interesting um, to actually look at different models. And all of them are going to be imperfect in some way or another. But mm. uh, but actually, I guess to use those to throw some light on what happens here, and perhaps some of those things that we take for granted, um, you know, might become um, a, a little more able to be questioned. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is my last question, really, and that um, kind of goes towards your point of the book, which is, I think, to it's a call for us to humanise and change the system. So what changes do you think need to happen to make the education system in the UK more fair and to eliminate these corrupt practices? Well, I, I mean, I think I do argue in the book that we actually need to have a, um, I mean, we need, we need, I think, to canvas a number, a number of structural kind of questions. And I don't, and people often come up with a one kind of solution. So what we're going to do is we're going to return all schools to the local authority, or what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of Ofsted, or what we're going to do is we're going to make all the schools academies and, you know, and then it'll be a uniform system and it'll be much easier to organise. Mm. Um, and I, I think, you know, that all the research kind of will suggest that a kind of one best structural fix is not going to do it. And that, you know, what we need is a much more kind of nuanced um, and well-informed, I think, and well-evidenced kind of process of what needs to happen. And I think that does mean, um, it does mean, I think, addressing the democratic deficit and actually seeing how it is that a lot of people who have got um, um, views, um, useful opinions, um, knowledge, um, networks um, can actually be involved in thinking about how it is that um, the the whole system itself can can operate within a kind of public good framework. I mean, actually, I think we have to argue about what a public good framework actually is. Um, and I think we really have to um, come up with some new ways of thinking about how we're going to deal with the um, nexus, that ongoing historical nexus between um, poverty and poor educational attainment. That, and that's mm. not a simple kind of... Um, relationship and it's all it's not the case that it's it, you go and look at a few successful schools and then try and scale that out across the system because we've been trying that for some time as well and that hasn't worked either um so you know that's i think one of the really big kind of serious 
questions, you know, and you, you might have, for example, you know, uh, a kind of serious two or three year national commission, which actually looked at poverty in education, um, you know, which was independent, which um, really did gather the best kind of evidence, um, get the best kind of ideas um, and, and uh, practices um, in conversation to try and think about actually might be done um, and um, and I think that would build on and engage I think people who at the moment I think a lot of a lot of people in education are feeling unsupported by government you know government turns on them I mean they've turned on teachers and schools yeah. during the pandemic you know this is not a way to get the best out of people you know you, you've got people who are really the, the vast majority of whom are, are working really hard, you know, and I'm sure any parent who's had to educate their kids at home has yes, got that's some, me. <laughs> exactly yeah. some idea now that, you know, this is not something that comes naturally. You know, mm. you actually need to know stuff in order to be able to help children learn past a certain point. Um, and it's and, been the learning curve for teachers as well, hasn't it? They, they must have just been totally overwhelmed during the last six months. Well, I think I think you know there's been huge amounts of effort that have actually gone on, yeah. but when you know you get like now the kind of hectoring about oh teachers just want to stay home and you know they should have the schools open and, and you know and as well naughty parents we're going to find them if they don't want to send yeah. their children to school and you know there's this kind of um, authoritarianism, I think Thatcher used to be called a kind of authoritarian populist, and I think that's also true of this government as well. They actually are um, very kind of haughty um, and removed in all kinds of ways from actually the people who make the system work, who they depend on. And I think, you know, looking at how that kind of relationship can be healed um, seems to me a really important part of the political process. And actually having people be able to, um, you know, talk, um, exchange ideas, um, be listened to, um, be taken seriously, um, certainly I think for the education profession, I think, would be um, a big step in the right, in the right direction. Um, mm. And I think you could clearly do that in partnership with a whole range of other, other people as well. Um, you know, parents obviously are concerned, but, but other groups in the, in the community too, I think, have got things that they might want to say to about what education might be. I mean, I'm pretty sure that if I was, you know, living in rural England, there might be things that I want from a school system that I don't think it's perhaps giving me at the moment. Um, you know, so I, I think there is a, a kind of a big conversation. I think, you know, governments are scared of big conversations, but mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're in a kind of time now I think we can see, you know, I was in Australia in January when it was burning. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got this kind of uh, terrible virus at the moment. I mean, we can see that we are not, you know, lords of all we survey. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies of all we survey. You know, we've got, we've got a kind of world that we actually need to think about 
we've that education is the place where we educate the next generation there are some really and the generations to come you know there's some really big questions i think about you know what kind of education what kind of qualities do young people need in order to be able to cope with the sort of world that that we have already not to mention what it's actually going to be you know their capacity to deal with uncertainty their capacity to solve problems to think through things to actually be able to call on a range of different kind of knowledges. I'm not convinced that, you know, government actually, with its obsession on test results, actually understands, as well as teachers and schools do, the kinds of big educational questions that are actually at stake at the minute. No. It does feel like your book's kind of coming at what could potentially be a turning point um, for education if we start thinking in this different way and it feels like if we don't things are only going to get worse and poverty and difference between different people and educational outcomes is going to get bigger and more damaging isn't it yeah I think my book is one amongst a, a number of kind of you know people who in different ways are calling for the same kinds of things that's yeah that's a bit of a rethink you know, we need we need to stop assuming that we know best, um, and we just kind of do what we did before, or we do what happened to us at school, or some we have some kind of 1950s dream of of education, which of course was a time when a lot of kids left school when they were 13 and 14. Yeah. And- badly served by their schooling you know it might have been great for some but it was not that good for a lot of others um you know that that i mean i guess people are always kind of calling for a rethink but it does just feel at the minute that um you know there are so many things going on that that are are kind of challenged to um, you know, not just children, but actually to us as a kind of species, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to kind of rethink some of the things that we've taken for granted for the last 200 or so years and, and think about how we can we can organise ourselves and live our, live a bit differently. And, and I don't think that means going backwards. It's finding new ways forward. I think the hope is from all these difficult times is that you do find better directions and better ways of doing things. Um, Thank you, Pat, for speaking to me today. That was really interesting. You can find out more about Pat's book, School Scandals, Blowing the Whistle on the Corruption of Our Education System, on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.